This is Ed Cashmark, the Everyday Economist, keeping my eye on the economy every day for you, with no bluster, no bias, and no bull. May 11, 2020. No economic releases today, and really not much happening in the stock market, so we're just going to go straight to some economic insights from around the economy. Starting out with uh, credit ratings, uh, the number of companies with rock-bottom credit ratings has exceeded the peak of the two- 2008 financial crisis fueled by the demise of debt-laden, private equity-led buyouts. The total number of companies on the bottom, five rungs of Moody's credit ratings ladder, along with those at risk of a downgrade from the rung above, has grown by 213 to 412, marking a more than 405 increase from the depths of the last financial crisis. Two-thirds of those companies in the lowest reaches of the creditworthiness spectrum, 273, are backed by private equity groups. Default is thought to be more imminent risk once borrowers slip down to CAA 1, 5 from the bottom. So it basically is saying that the credit markets, the credit ratings for these companies are getting pretty bad. Uh, medical mysteries of the coronavirus. From head to foot, COVID-19 causes are fiendishly variety of symptoms. Some are relatively mild, such as loss of smell and taste, but others may be fatal, such as when doctors can call an immune storm, such as when what doctors call an immune storm destroys vital organs. The more this virus is studied, the more complex it appears to be. Let's see here. All right, just going through some things. And all right, that's enough for that one. Next up, some information on what's going on in Europe. More than half of Ireland's young people are without jobs. Ireland's unemployment rate has surged to a record 28.2% after huge coronavirus job losses that have left more than half of the country's young people out of work. 52.8% of people aged 15 to 24 were jobless last month. Dublin is also subsidizing the pay of 427,000 workers, meaning the number of people relying on the state for all or part of their income has risen by more than 1 million since the virus struck. Now, Norway and Denmark announced plans to reopen large parts of, uh, of their countries, and Norway is going the furthest by saying that on Monday, which is today, its entire school system is planning to reopen, one of the first European countries to take such a step. Denmark will allow restaurants, cafes, and shops to reopen on Monday as well, while secondary schools will have to wait until the following week. Bars, fitness centers, theaters, and cinemas are not allowed to reopen, and the government will announce on June 1 whether foreigners will be allowed to enter again. Now we have some interesting news coming out of Asia. Well, yeah, partly Asia. South Korea, Germany, and China have all been hit by new COVID-19 outbreaks, highlighting the challenges facing governments seeking to loosen social restrictions as millions of Europeans and Asians prepare for the tentative reopening of their economies. Um, It says, France, Spain, Denmark, Norway, and the UK will today lift some measures brought in to contain the spread of the deadly virus as leaders across the region move to limit the worsening economic damage. Secondary school students will return to classrooms across Norway, like I just said. Even though the UK is the worst hit country in the world after the US, it is also taking its first cautious steps toward easing 
its lockdown measures this week, with citizens being allowed to take unlimited outdoor exercise. Uh, go for a jog, finally. But what's interesting is uh, Sweden refused to follow other European countries in closing its primary schools and kindergartens or banning people from leaving their homes, arguing that such draconian measures were not sustainable and could unnecessarily harm the economy. Sweden, with a population of 10 million, has had 3,220 deaths so far from the coronavirus, more than triple the number in neighboring Denmark. Finland and Norway, which have a combined population of 15 million, Relative to population, 311 people have died per million in Sweden, while in neighboring Norway, the toll so far is only 40 per million. So by Sweden not locking down, it sounds like they had a much worse death toll. That doesn't uh, bode well for other countries and states who want to open back up, but they didn't, lock, they didn't lock down early, so that's a little bit different situation. We here in the U.S. we locked down. Now we're getting ready to open up, but Sweden didn't lock down at first, so their part or their deaths per, per million is higher. So basically, what it's saying is we did the right thing by locking down earlier, and any other country who did as well. It says Sweden is unlikely to escape the long-term severe economic pl uh, consequences, such as the rest of Europe. European Commission forecasts that Sweden's GDP will fall by 6.1 percent this year. One big reason is that Sweden is a small, open economy with a large manufacturing industry. All right, what else we got here? Oh, this is interesting. U.S. prepares for COVID-19 vaccine trials on human volunteers. Uh, about 100 COVID-19 vaccines are in development across the world, and it says that volunteers are unlikely to be in short supply, with more than 14,000 people already having signed up. I think that 14,000 is for just the United States. Unfortunately, we have elevated risk levels at top U.S. banks, which is causing a concern. It says daily trading risks at top Wall Street banks hit their highest level since 2011 during the first quarter turmoil, prompting speculation that their capital-intensive markets businesses would be further scaled back. It says uh, value at risk at these top U.S. banks which measures their potential daily trading losses, soared to its highest level in 34 quarters, so eight and a half years during the first three months of the year. And banks' ratio of capital to risk-weighted assets, which is a key regulatory measure of leverage, fell in the first quarter, putting the allocation of that capital under more scrutiny. Next up is an interesting note from uh, the commercial mortgage-backed security industry, WeWork, WeWork's move to skip rent payments and renegotiate hundreds of its leases is rippling out into the commercial mortgage market, sending the price of bonds backed by the company's payments tumbling. The pandemic has exposed investors to the short-term nature of WeWork's leases, more at risk of, which are more at risk of rising vacancies than traditional office buildings that tend to have much longer-term tenants. All right, now on to a few notes from a, a webinar I watched this earlier this morning uh, from the National Association of Business Economics. Uh, it was about tracking labor market trends. So they had this uh, breakout between employees who were considered paid and those who were considered active. Now this was kind of a confusing webinar to follow 
based on how they labeled people, but basically paid people were people who were getting paid and then they lost their job. And active people were people who were getting paid and they lost their pay, but they didn't lose their job. So they said that the number of people who lost both their pay and their job fell 22% from February 15th to April 18th. They were using a different data set that they put together based on ADP data, CES data, and BLS data, as opposed to just the, the BLS data, because they think they have better granularity, more details, and it's a higher frequency. So they're using this alternate data set, but it tracks pretty closely with the BLS. So any, any insights they glean from this data set, they are basically saying would probably closely match the Bureau of Labor Statistics had they had this granularity in this data. Okay, all that being said, paid employment fell 22% from February 15th to April 18th. Active employment fell from 14%, fell 14% from February 15th to April 18th. This implies that 22% decline in employment comprised of 14% from permanent losses and 8% from furloughs. So 14 plus 8 is 22% total decline. If you look at the share of the decline, the share of the decline was 64% from permanent job losses and 36% from furloughs. So that suggests that the bulk of the job of the people who lost their, their pay in uh, in this time period also lost their job, whereas only 36% of them only lost their pay, but they still have a job. So this suggests that getting those people who lost both their pay and their job back into the economy is going to be much harder as opposed to those who are already, who only lost their pay but still have their job. So the bottom line here, bottom line here is that it's going to be a harder lift when we finally start opening things up again, again, like I mentioned before, either because people have lost a job and they need to find a new one, or they lost a job and they need to find a new one and they aren't going to be able to find one, or because they lost a job at a business that went out of business and they're going to have to look for another job, and because depending on how long it takes people to get back in the labor force and find a job, how much are their skills going to atrophy? In other words, how much are they going to lose the, the quality uh, of, their, of their skills that they were using before? says small firms had bigger share a bigger percent decline in the, in employment which was 27% compared to large firms which was only 17%. Low wage workers had a bigger percent decline in employment 35% than high wage workers which was only 10%. And many small businesses are totally shut down while large companies are just shrinking. So Overall, it's basically saying small firms and low-wage workers are getting hit a lot harder than large firms and high-wage workers. Uh, next up is uh, just a couple notes from an article that said uh, um, there's uncertainty whether China will keep Phase 1 trade deal with the U.S. in place. The U.S. is prepared to go down a different path if China does not keep the deal. And uh, possible new tariffs are complicating the matter between China and the US. Another uh, short video showed that 80% uh, of the time usually spent in hospitals is spent on elective surgeries. So not at all, um, some of these surgeries are coming back. That's a very large portion of, of the work and, that hospitals do on the revenue that they, that they 
that they make. So May 4th, elective surgeries starting to come, come back in some states, 60 to 70% in some places. Patient confidence in coming back to hospitals, however, depends on uh, what state they're in, as in what state of the union they're in, and uh, what hospital they're going to in terms of what's been the, the quality of uh, protective health measures at these hospitals and the degree to which uh, these hospitals have ample PPE, and the degree to which COVID patients are separated from other patients in the hospital. And then I read another interesting article from Ladders, which is a company that helps people find jobs. <laughs> Interestingly, though, uh, you know, recently they've had a lot of articles that have to do with the uh, coronavirus as opposed to uh, the uh, as opposed to the labor market, but I'm kind of going down that same path since there's so much news from the coronavirus and the pandemic. I've added that to my podcast, obviously, uh, and people are doing this because the coronavirus is the, by far the biggest driver of the economy right now, everywhere, all over the world. So uh, anyone that is talking about labor markets or the economy that doesn't talk about the coronavirus is just kind of doing a disservice to their to their constituents and their audience because it's a very, very important part of what's happening right now, not only in terms of the economy, but also in terms of analyzing it and figuring out where we go from here. Okay, so this article said, uh, was titled, Why Coronavirus is So Contagious. It was done by, it was research done by Cornell University. So some interesting points here. SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, combines the deadliness of the first SARS virus that emerged in China in 2003 with the contagiousness of HCoV-HKU1, a super-contagious human coronavirus strain that hardly causes any symptoms at all. Unsettlingly, SARS-CoV-2 is a mixture of the worst that both of these strains had to offer. So that's what we're dealing with right now. A new structural loop within SARS-CoV-2's spike protein that houses four amino acids that are quite distinct from any other known human coronavirus. So that's another unique uh, twist about all of this. The, uh, Professor Whitaker believes that this structural loop and sequence of four amino acids are what makes SARS-CoV-2 so contagious. The study's authors compared the SARS-CoV-2 structural model with the structures of other coronaviruses found in animals and say they were able to confirm that SARS-CoV-2 did indeed originate in bats. Other, study, other studies have pointed to pangolins of, as being the animal originator of the virus, but the team at Cornell says there isn't enough evidence to support that theory. However, it says how, uh, how SARS-CoV-2 got into humans is still unclear. In other words what was the mechanism, the transfer mechanism between bats to humans? Was there another animal involved? And if so, what was it? It's just not clear yet. Another article, talking. this is quite interesting, talked about using location data to compute COVID-19 statistics as well as do some analysis and forecasting and things like that. So listen to some of the things that they're saying here. And, uh, you know, what do you think? Researchers can use cell phone data to track and control the spread of virus and elevate, or excuse me, evaluate how effective government responses to the disease have been. They propose a system in which medical records and spatial data work together. By the way, this article is from the University of Minnesota. 
In February, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services said personal health data may be disclosed in an effort to treat another patient. In other words, they were making an exception. Data privacy concerns may be an obstacle for this kind of system in the U.S., but government should make an exception for this pandemic. Opt-in apps are another option. Google and Apple are developing one, and an, and an app called Safe Distance is being developed by the University of Minnesota and Health Partners. Uh, they can also use cell phone data to compute each person's daily range over time, in other words, how far they are moving in society, and then communicate more and maybe put further measures in place. So what this says is that they are looking into using cell phone data to see where people are going. So if you have your cell phone and you're going to your friend's house or your grocery store or going to get gas or going to buy you know, something, they are going to be tracking you. At least that is what they are proposing. They're going to know where you go every single part of your day. Is that something that people want? <laughs> I have a very high suspicion that that is not going to be the case. But at the same time, uh, the other argument, side of the argument is, if we, use, if we have enough data, we can use that data for good, for trying to prevent the spread of this disease and hopefully tamping things down and getting more people back to work sooner. So the question is, what's the dividing line that people are willing to walk between saying, I want my freedom, my privacy, and my data privacy, and I don't want to be surveilled, versus, okay, maybe I'll, I'd be willing to let some of that uh, slide so that we can get people back to work and get the economy back going, get the, and, and that may include, might include that person you know, that you're talking to. So this is a very interesting uh, um, conundrum that we have going on here. It also says that uh, cell phone data is being collected from companies to analyze in relation to the local community in Minnesota. So it sounds like this data collection is already being done, unbeknownst to probably pretty much everybody. Uh, they are going to use the data to identify low-risk areas that have enough testing in place to allow those places to open back up sooner. And they want to identify and isolate the most infected and shield the most vulnerable to contain the spread. They also want to identify high-risk areas such as places with high animal-human contact and monitor them. Brings to mind the wet markets in China. Okay, that's enough for that article. And now some notes from uh, an, a, a podcast from the University of Minnesota that I listened to a little while ago, uh, about a week ago, but I <laughs> just didn't have enough time to put it in my previous episodes. This was called The Real Reality of Testing. And here are some of the notes from that podcast. We need 55 to 70% infection rate to get herd immunity, or we need a vaccine. Not sure if social distancing or, or nature has led to the slowdown in cases and deaths. There was a lull in activity after initial wave in 1918, and then it came back. That was the Spanish flu. The big peak wave was about six months into past pandemics, on average. So we're right now about three months into this. Two and a half, three months. So you're talking about another three months. You're talking about maybe August before we hit the second wave, if, or the peak wave, if that happens. 
A model is only as good as the information you put into the model, obviously. The IHME model shows different projections than the Imperial College and Harvard models. 80% of infections will not require any medical care, 10% will be hospitalized, 5% in the ICU, and 1% will die. Testing ability is held back by lack of, ability, lack of availability of reagents used in the test. China is an important supplier of reagents, so that's a problem. Testing, will not get, testing though, will not get us out of this. Tests are simply not accurate enough, at least at the point in time they were talking about, which I believe this was from April 24th, so we're talking three weeks ago, so... I'm assuming that tests are more accurate now. Half of the tests on the market so far are junk. Again, hopefully that's better now. Uh, they're working on it. Uh, SIDRAP is uh, working on its own plan for reopening. And they need to focus on nursing homes and get them the needed PPE. They're disappointed at the lack of CDC involvement in decision making. They want to deca decontaminate N95 masks instead of throwing them away. Uh, need to review how PPE and ventilators are distributed equitably and how can health and business communities support each other. Now, the amount of new information daily is overwhelming. Uh, yeah. And uh, Mr. Osterholm, who is on this podcast, calls himself a lighthouse that isn't moving if an aircraft is coming right at him. Hmm. I repeat that calls himself a lighthouse that isn't moving if an aircraft is coming right at him. Basically what he's saying is he's not going to change his mind, he's not going to change his stance, he's not going to change his outlook, he's not going to change his recommendations or his suggestions. He has what he thinks needs to be done and that's what he's going to go with and that's what he's going to suggest to whoever asks him his opinion. Um... I'm wondering if he's going to change his mind if, if the data changes, you know? It sounds like a pretty uh, set-in-stone uh, point of view and outlook and uh, way of, of doing things. So, yeah, I don't know. We'll see how that goes and how anything, if anything changes. But I will tell you, based on what I've heard recently, it does not sound like that's the case. Uh... The view now they have a they came out with a viewpoint report and I read an article that basically just gave a summary of the report and the summary report says the pandemic may last 18 to 24 months since only 5 to 15 percent of the population is currently infected but we need 60 to 70 percent to get it to the point where it's not spreading anymore i.e. herd herd immunity the worst case scenario is no vaccine or no no herd immunity. We need to have triggers for when to reinstate mitigation measures. In other words, if things start to get bad again, we need to have not only a plan in place to reinstate mitigation measures, but we need to have triggers to tell us when to reinstate those mitigation measures. Government should make it clear that this pandemic will not be over anytime soon. Well, on the one hand, I think everybody knows that. On the other hand, again, uh, are we looking at data or are we just sticking with our talking points without making any changes to the data? Uh, uh, excuse me, not without making any changes to your outlook and your viewpoints based on changes in the data. People need to be prepared for resurgences over the next two years. Okay, so now we're looking out two years. We are now on, this is a quote from him, from Michael Osterholm. Uh, 
We are now on virus time and nobody knows exactly how this virus will behave. Another quote from him. A pandemic will likely not end anytime soon if the scenarios we have outlined come to pass. Now wait a minute. For, let's listen to these two. Let's, let's rewind here. Let's listen to these two statements. The first one was, we are now on virus time. Um, okay, so are we just, does that mean we just let this thing go and do nothing? No, it's not what it means, but why would he say something like that? How about something like, we are doing everything we possibly can to get this virus under control so that we can save lives, save health, get people back to work as soon as possible, rather than just saying, we're on virus time now. I mean, that is an unbelievably defeatist attitude, if you ask me. The second statement, uh, saying that this pandemic will not end anytime soon, end anytime soon, if any of the scenarios we have outlined come to pass. Well, don't they have any scenarios outlined where the pandemic doesn't last quite as long? In other words, don't they have any scenarios that they have put together where they've had mitigation measures put in place and an a, a antiviral drug comes along or we have herd immunity or we finally get a vaccine? What are these scenarios they're talking about? Do they not have any optimistic scenarios that they've, that they've put together? I'm just going to say this one more time. The quote, the pandemic will likely not end anytime soon if any of the scenarios we have outlined come to pass. Wow. Again, you know, I, I did not want to mention this guy's name because I don't want to ruffle any, any feathers here. But hey, this is public data. This man is working for a public institution. He's on the air all the time, so I'm going to name his name. He's Dr. Michael Osterholm, and he works at the University of Minnesota. And if you listen to the uh, statements that he's said so far, you will understand where this guy is coming from and what side of the tracks he's on. It gets worse. He was on Meet the Press yesterday with Chuck Todd on NBC. So, of course, I tuned in and took a few notes. Here's what he had to say. Going back to our normal life is not safe. We expect to see an increase in cases. Everybody knows that we're going to see an increase in cases, for, but, but it's for two reasons. One, people are getting tested more often, and two, people are getting the virus as they go back in the, in the society. The question is, which one of those two buckets is going to be bigger? Are we going to see more people getting, getting uh, positive uh, getting tested positive because they are getting more tests, or is it because it's more people that are actually contracting the virus? I hope they are going to be able to spread that data out because that's incredibly important. Because if, if most of the new positive cases are simply because we have more tests, then that does not necessarily mean it's a bad idea to reopen the economy. You get what I'm saying here? Here's his next quote. This one kind of rivals the other one. We're riding this tiger, not directing it. So on the one hand, we are now on virus time. And on the other hand, or in another way to put it, we're riding this tiger, we're not directing it. Well, 
um, do we want to maybe try to direct it? Or are we just saying that we're going to uh, we're going to be content with the fact that we're just riding a tiger? I I, I mean, wow, the, the statements are just incredible. Then, this, then he says, this virus is going to do what it's going to do. We can only nibble at the edges. In other words, regardless of what we do, we're not going to be able to do very much. Well, I got something to say about that in the coming um, coming few minutes here. His next, his next quote was, It's not a good message to send to the public that we can control this virus in any meaningful way. Well, what are we trying to do then? If we're not trying to control the virus, then what in the world is the meaning of the reason for all the shutdowns? Yes, we are trying to control the virus. That's why we shut the economy down. What in the... I mean, oh my gosh. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit heated here, but this just to me is just very, very frustrating to hear these things. People need to know, this is him again, people need to know 60 to 70% of Americans will eventually be infected, like he said before. Then he said, we need to learn how to die with the virus and to live with it. Okay. I got a better plan. How about we learn how to kill this virus and wipe it out for good? We need to learn how to, how to die with this virus? What in the world kind of message does that send to the American and the global population? This is just incredible. Okay, next up. Uh, we can't give people a false sense of security that we're going to do more than we can. Well, obviously we can't do more than we can, but, but, but he's basically saying we can't give people a false sense of security. You're right. We don't want a false sense of security, but we do want optimism in the sense that we're trying what we can to do and do what we can to get rid of this virus rather than just saying we're on virus time and we're riding the tiger and we have no control over it. And no matter what we do, we can't contain it. I mean, and then he said, and then he goes on to say, this virus will keep transmitting whatever we do, whatever we do. Now here is the, uh, here is the real, 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 just wow moment. He said, I worry right now more than anything if this virus suddenly starts to disappear. That's what he said. Well, of course, his next statement was, if it goes away for a while and, you know, society becomes complacent and we open back up, Again, it could come back with a vengeance. Okay, I understand that. But when you say, I worry right now more than anything, if this virus suddenly starts to disappear, well, I got a bigger worry than that. My biggest worry is that more and more people die before we even get to the point where the virus disappears or before we get to the point where we have a second wave. Or... Uh, we have a situation where hospitals continue to be shut down, which it sounds like they're starting to open, which is good. But, you know, I have bigger worries 
than than having this virus disappear. My two biggest worries are more people dying now and more people losing their jobs now and their livelihoods now and you know suicides and 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 uh and drug and alcohol abuse and domestic violence and all kinds of societal breakdowns if we keep our economy shut for much longer. And he's saying my biggest worry right now is the virus suddenly starts to disappear. Oh boy. He says if it go okay, I said that. Uh he says uh contact tracing and testing are important. Oh, sorry. He says contact tracing and testing are important, but they won't stop a resurgence. Okay. So if so basically what he's saying here is a resurging a resurgence is inevitable regardless of what we do. Okay. So then my question and response would be then why would we do contact tracing and testing at all if it's not going to help stop a resurgence? The lack of logic in these statements is stunning. And this guy is an, a well-known, well-respected epidemiologist. He knows more about epidemiology than me. I'm going to say that right now. I am not an epidemiologist. But I do know common sense when I see it, and I do know a lack of common sense when I see that too. And what I'm reading right now is an un- incredible amount of lack of common sense especially a, an incredible lack amount of just following one stream of logic to the next. It's just not there. All I'm hearing is fear, 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 fear. That's what I'm hearing. And let me tell you, let me tell you this right now. This is what's happening. This man does not want this pandemic to end anytime soon. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Guess what? He's on TV every single day. Why do you think he doesn't want this pandemic to end? Because he is now in the spotlight. He's out there all the time. And that's a sad thing because people who are out there losing their jobs, losing their businesses, going crazy, stuck in homes with their families, bored, stupid, can't figure out, you know, you know, don't know what to do with their time, losing their skills, don't know if they're going to get their job back, don't know if they're going to find another job, watching their retirement accounts fall apart, spending money, uh, you know, uh, that they may not have in six months or may not even have right now, they're going into debt. And this guy's out there basically saying, hey, everybody, I got news for you. We have no chance. Throw in the towel right now. Throw in the towel. That's what he's saying. A couple more statements from him. He says, we as a country cannot ramp up testing without a technological breakthrough. Well, we've had some technological breakthroughs already in terms of testing this virus, in terms of uh, getting tests that are better quality. So we already have that, but he's basically saying we can't ramp up testing without a technological breakthrough. That, again, I got a way to, I, I know there's one way that we can ramp up testing without a technological breakthrough. We can manufacture more testing kits. It doesn't take a technological breakthrough to manufacture more testing kits. 
Oh my gosh! And finally, he says, testing equipment is beginning to break down due to overuse. Well, that could be true. And I, I, I don't have anything to say about that. Um, I'm sure that's that's true. I don't know. Okay, folks, I'm, I'm sorry that I got a little heated there, but uh, this is this is my podcast, okay? And this is me giving it like it is. This is raw. This is me sharing facts and sharing what other people are saying about the economy and the coronavirus and sharing it with you so that you know what is happening both in terms of facts on the economy and in terms of either facts or insights and in some cases opinions and viewpoints on the pandemic. What you just heard today was an awful lot of viewpoints and not necessarily database facts. Okay? And they are not my. <laughs> they they are l- largely his viewpoints, not mine. And I am refuting them, or at least trying to point out why they don't hold water, or at the very least trying to point out why this kind of rhetoric and this kind of 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 messaging and communication is not helpful. It's not helpful. Okay. I un- again, I understand why people. I mean, people need to be no told the truth. They they need, they need to be told the truth. What's the truth? I'm going to share you the share the truth with you in just a minute about the coronavirus right now. But when you're saying certain things that either don't aren't logical or at worst are fear-mongering, then that's where I have to come in and say, "All right, I got to speak up." And I hope that you appreciate that. Because then you will get a better idea as to what's really going on, and that will give you a, a better idea as to what what you might expect. And if certain things happen a certain way, you will know why, and then you can fight back. Okay? People are fighting back already about all these lockdowns. And when I hear stuff like this from a respected epidemiologist... That really makes me think that there is something going on here that that some people just don't want to admit. Some people already know, or some people already think they know, but some people just don't want to admit, and some people just don't want to talk about it at all. They don't even want to cover it. Okay, that's enough for that. Now, uh, an update on the coronavirus, a couple things here. The IHME model from the University of Washington bumped up their forecast for deaths by August 4th from about 135,000 to a little over 137,000. So not much of an increase, but a little bit of an increase. And again, August 4th is, or August beginning of August is about when we are going to hit the six-month mark of the pandemic, which on average in past pandemics has been when the second wave has come. So... But again, like I mentioned earlier, I don't, you know, I don't see either in the IHME model or the University of Minnesota slash Minnesota Department of Health model, I do not see anything in their models showing a second wave. If they're so worried about a second wave, why do they not publish a second wave scenario in their models? I just have to ask that question. One other note that I heard last night on the news was that 89% of counties in the United States have fewer than 15 fatali- fatalities total. 
fewer than 15 fatalities total. 52% of counties in the United States have zero fatalities. Zero. That, that, those are some stunning t- statistics. And that goes to show you why so many people are so upset about these lockdown measures because you can't have this blanket, one-size-fits-all approach to trying to stem the spread of this virus because it's not going to work the same in some places that it's going to work in others. And worse, it's going to have much, much more devastating consequences in some places than others. But again, like I said, at least the lockdowns and the stay-at-home order and the social distancing measures are mitigation efforts to try to contain the spread of the virus, which is what Michael, Hol- Michael Osterholm is saying, just simply can't be done whatever we do. Yep. That's what he's saying. Okay, so now what I want to do is give a brief update on the coronavirus itself, and it's, you know what? It's good news. I have some good news to report. Here's the good news on the coronavirus. If Dr. Osterholm is listening, right now we have 283,734 people that have died from the coronavirus as of May 10th around the entire world. That's not good news. What is good news is that the uh, number of deaths divided by the number of cases, which is the death rate, peaked at about 7.09% on April 29th and is now down to 6.79%. So that's improvement. The growth rate in fatalities day over day is 1.3%. That's about the lowest we've seen since the pandemic began. That's more good news. Now, if we extrapolate out uh, using the seven-day moving average of the fatality rate of 1.9%, we get, by May 31st, 424,238 fatalities. That is far less than what we were projecting just a week ago. Far less. It was way over a million. And we've cut the forecast down in half. That's just a simple extrapolation based on the seven-day moving average. And and we're probably not even going to get there. Uh, because, well, who knows? We might still, but hopefully we're 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 close to the crest of this thing here. Now that's for that was for the globe. This is for the United States. As of May tenth, eighty thousand seven hundred eighty-seven deaths. Only seven hundred and fifty deaths yesterday, and that was the lowest since March twenty-nine. And. The death rate is down from, oh, actually, it's, well, down a little bit from the peak of 5.95% a couple days ago to 5.91%, so not much change there. But uh, the growth rate in fatalities day over day was only 0.9% on May 10th. And let me just check, and I do believe that is, yep, that is the lowest day over day rate of growth in fatalities since the pandemic began. More good news. If we take the, the seven-day moving average of 2.4% and extrapolate that out to May 31st, we get 132,000 fatalities. That is far less than what we were projecting just a week ago, kind of like, like for the, the globe as a whole. 
So there's good news there, uh, Dr. Osterholm. What do you think about that? We have some good news. We're not out of the woods yet by any stretch of the imagination. Could more people get tested positive? Yes. Could it be because more people are out in society? Yes. Could it be because more tests are available? Yes. Could we have a second wave of the virus? Yes. Could we have a situation where we don't have herd immunity? Yes. Could we have a situation where we have no antiviral drug? Yes. Could we have a situation where we have no vaccines? Yes. But it seems like that is the worst situation by far, and it seems like, from Dr. Osterholm, we really shouldn't hold on to any hope. Unbelievable. Well, I've got I got to tell you, when you turn on the microphone, uh, some days you just don't know what's going to come out. And um, that's what came out today. I shared some economic facts with you, but I also shared uh, what one person is saying and what I think of what he's saying. And uh, that's called debate and dialogue. Even though he's not here to defend his arguments, um, you know, that's the way it goes sometimes. Um, who knows? Maybe I can have him on my podcast someday and we can talk about this. That would be quite interesting. All right. On to unemployment tip number 21. This is uh, the start of the third commandment of how to stay sane during unemployment, which is try new things. And tip number 21 is try new foods. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I would say, you know, go out to the grocery store and try something new. Uh, that's what I did when I first lost my job. I tried something new. I went to the grocery store and I went around and I picked up a bunch of stuff I never tried before. I tried cooking some things. One of them went pretty well. One of them didn't go so well. <laughs> but, hey, you try and you learn. But trying new foods can really spice up your life. Sometimes it turns out to be a tasty new food. Sometimes it turns out turns out to be, hey, one of your best new foods. And sometimes it turns out to be not so good. And sometimes it turns out to be really quite terrible. But you never know unless you try it. So take your mind off your job loss, off your finances, off your depression, and off whatever you're feeling right now. And just go out and try some new foods. Go out and do it tonight. Go to the grocery store and... Just go down any old aisle and grab something new and cook it up or throw it in the microwave or whatever you're going to do. All right. That's all I have for today, folks. It was quite long, I understand, but I uh, had some things to, to share. Uh, please subscribe and follow or follow me if you like what you hear. Please spread the word to your family, friends, neighbors, and relatives. And today I would like to thank a new follower that I got over the weekend. And uh, this person's name is Nua Manish. So welcome aboard, Nua. I hope that you find my podcast valuable and uh, that you will enjoy it enough to spread the word about my podcast to all your family, friends, neighbors, and relatives. Welcome aboard, Nua. And uh, again, you can listen to previous episodes if you'd like to get my previous tips on unemployment or how to stay sane during unemployment. And uh, let's see, what do we have coming up for tomorrow? I didn't look at this here. We have uh, on the docket tomorrow, National Federation of Independent Businesses Small Business Optimism Index. We'll take a look and see how that's 
working out. And let me just look here. Let me see what what week or what month that's for. I'm sure that's for April. Yep, that's for April. Uh, and then we'll also look at uh, CPI, in other words, inflation. So that'll be quite interesting to see what happens there. Uh, looks like um, they are expecting uh, a big decline, which <laughs> not unexpected, of course. Uh, everybody's uh, buying an awful lot less of stuff today. Well, a lot less of some things, but more of others, like toilet paper, <laughs> hand sanitizer, whatever. But it'll be interesting. What'll be what'll be really interesting will be to see what's what's the mix of different things in terms of uh, what went up in price and what went down in price. So, inflation and uh, small business optimism on the docket for tomorrow. So please tune in tomorrow. This is Zed Cashmark, the Everyday Economist. Please stay safe and stay sane. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your day.